This is a STEAM Channel program on UCTV. Go full STEAM ahead at uctv.tv slash STEAM, where science, technology, engineering, arts, and math converge. During the years that I was the executive director of Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, and Orpheus is a... Uh, is a conductorless orchestra. It's the only orchestra in the world that rehearses, records, and performs all of its music without a conductor. And so during my years working with Orpheus, uh, I became really fascinated with how the orchestra did its work and what were the implications of working in this way uh, for different types of human activity. And we, we began to, to, to work with the orchestra essentially as, as, as a learning tool for high-performance teamwork and collaboration. We, uh, there was a Harvard case study, and we started consulting with corporations and, and, and uh, who were really fascinated by the rehearsal process and what they could learn about how they could surface creativity in their organizations. This was at a time when there was a tremendous drive, this goes back now to the late 90s, when uh, the IT revolution had begun to smash out layers of middle management and push work and responsibility increasingly down into the hands of people actually doing the work. And so looking at a flat, flat fast, and flexible organization like, like Orpheus became a, a great source of learning. It also became something of, of, of an international phenomenon because we began to do this all over the world and there was a tremendous, uh, tremendous interest and focus in it. And uh, growing out of that work with Orpheus, there was ultimately uh, everything from a PBS documentary to, uh, to, to, to a book and so forth. I did some research uh, when I was uh, spending some time up at the business school at Columbia. And my research was really focused on kind of what, what, what was the context for this tremendous interest in an orchestra in the world of business? And how did the work that we were doing with Orpheus relate to, 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 to innovation and to trends in the time? And what I began to realize is that the emergence of the Orpheus process didn't happen in a vacuum. That during those same years that I was doing that work, there were others all over the world that were doing really fascinating kind of parallel experiments. And I began to think that in essence, what we had was a field that was trying to emerge, a field of arts-based learning. And it seemed to me that, that there were forces that were pushing the world in a direction where that was going to matter increasingly. I was on the board of directors of the Arts and Business Council at that time. We were in the process of merging with Americans for the Arts, a much larger organization, and we formed something together called Creativity Connection, which began to do research and model projects and publications and in different ways to convene and advance this field of arts-based learning. The conference board study that came out called Ready to Work uh, looked at the critical skills that drive success in a 21st century innovation workforce. And so what the conference board did is they interviewed 400 CEOs from across the country asking two sets of questions. The first is, what do you consider to be the critical skills that drive success in your workforce? and the critical skills that, that will be needed in a 21st century innovation workforce. The second is how would you assess the level of development of those skills in the people that come to you from colleges and universities looking for work? So what you can see is that there were these tremendous, very dramatic disconnects. Take a look at those robust blue bars there around creativity, collaboration, 
communication, especially communication across cultures. These were the skills that were identified as three of the very, very top. They persistently showed up as, as, as among the top five skills that CEOs felt were absolutely essential. Those anemic-looking red bars to the right of them represent the number of CEOs that felt that those skills were developed at a level that was anything better than mediocre. So there was this tremendous disconnect in these areas. We began calling that the innovation gap because we felt that unless that gap could be addressed, it would show up in tremendous gaps in America's innovation capacity and our STEM workforce. We began talking about that in, or, or around the country. And uh, as part of that, the National Science Foundation invited us in 2007 to do a symposium there. So we came to the NSF, and we brought with us uh, uh, Todd Seiler. Uh, and we actually did a metaforming session right there uh, at the National Science Foundation. We brought a choreographer, Liz Lerman. And so people actually had the chance to, to experience some of these tools and to use those experiences to spark reflection about the connections between arts-based learning and innovation in science. Out of that grew a series of three conferences that the NSF funded us to hold across the country uh, in 2010 and 2011. So these were, this was phase one of our work, and these were three regional conferences. We did one uh, here in uh, San Diego at Cal-IT2. We did one at the Smithsonian in Washington at the National Museum of American History. We did one of them at the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. So each one of these conferences was a kind of unique world in and of itself in that the, each conference brought together about 150 people across a remarkable range of disciplines and interests. So we brought together researchers, scientists, engineers, artists, dancers, painters, poets. We brought together classroom teachers and educators, business leaders, high school students, college students. It was a real cross-disciplinary mashup. In each conference, we explored this question of arts-based learning and innovation and STEM learning through three lenses. The first one of those was educational practice. We wanted to learn something about best practices out there. We wanted to share some of the best practices that we had developed. By this time, we had a, a, a small team of some of the leading practitioners in the country that had been working in this field over the previous decade. The second was research. We wanted to really understand something about what was known, what was the evidence for the impact of, of, of the arts on how we learn, how we innovate, how we explore and experience science. And the third was workforce development. What are the implications of this for, for, for workforce development? How do we address, use this to address some of the issues of the innovation gap? So in a sense, these were cross-disciplinary mashups bringing together people from many different perspectives that had the enormous challenge of having to, to, to actually find a common language as well as to explore these very complicated topics in a short period of time. For example, on the research side of things, we brought together 90 different scientists coming from research disciplines as different as neurobiology, cultural anthropology, arts and education, many, many, many different perspectives. So out of that, we developed a fairly comprehensive sense of the claims that were being made and what the actual state of knowledge was about the impact of arts-based learning on, uh, on how we learn and how we innovate. 
And this is an eye tracking study. It was done in Sweden in 2007. The yellow line represents the eyeball of the typical liberal arts student looking at the image, looking very intently at the center of the image and the obvious place where the figure is, a quick check of the periphery covering about 8% of the canvas. This next one shows something about what happens to your brain on art. These are how art students look at the same image. So it's very spidery and very chaotic and idiosyncratic. If you have 10 typical students looking at the image, it'll all kind of look the same. They'll, they'll drill down very intently on that 8% of the canvas. If you have 10 art students, the only thing that they'll have in common is that they won't look only in the obvious places, but each one will approach it fresh and differently. And so 10 of them will pretty much cover that entire world. So moving from how we see the world to how we engage the world through communication. So this is an experimental study by Cooper Union in the early 90s in which we actually found on a shelf and and, and published in the Journal of Business Strategy uh, as part of what we did with Creativity Connection. So Cooper Union set out really in wake of the challenger disaster. And if, 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 if you recall at that time, the critical information that could have prevented the disaster was well known, and it was published in the engineer's report, but it was put in page 132 in a footnote where nobody ever actually read it. So Cooper Union, like many engineering schools, was very focused after that on how they might improve the communication skills of engineers. Cooper Union took a very unusual approach to that. They decided to experiment with integrating dance, theater, and music into engineering education to produce engineers who could communicate more effectively and intelligibly with the rest of the world. And being engineers, they measured the outcomes very carefully. So this is our control group, or their control group, I should say. Now you see what happens when theater and music is added to the mix. There are significant differences. But now look what happens when you add dance to the mix. It's off the charts. So there's something going on there which goes beyond just the questions of, you know, you study theater and so you learn to stand up in front of a group of people and speak up. And that's important. But there's something else happening here. There's something about how we embody knowledge and how that affects how we understand it, how we communicate, how we relate to the rest of the world and see our place within it and so forth. So moving from communication to connection in the form of empathy, this is a representation of a meta-study that James Catterall did. In this meta-study, he brought together, I think it was 39 neuroimaging studies. Roughly half of them looked at the neural circuitry of the brain when experiencing empathy. The other half, the same circuitry, when looking at art or experiencing art. And what we see is that they share many of the same neural substrates. And what's also interesting is that the, those shared neural substrates were located both in the frontal cortex, the center of cognition, and also deep in the old reptilian brain, in the amygdala, where the seat of our emotions and passions. So powerful suggestion that there are connections between art and empathy. These connections show up in a very different way uh, in the work of Robert Root Bernstein at Michigan State University. Robert Bob is, 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 is one of the great figures in this field and has, has really done critically important research going back decades now, the connections between art and science and how we, how we make and how we learn and how we innovate. And in this study, what he and his team did is that they, they, they compared Nobel Prize winners with professional scientists who had successful careers but, but weren't, hadn't achieved that level of distinction. And he, he looked at more than 100 years' worth of data. 
And what he discovered is that the Nobel Prize winners were 17 times more likely to also be artists and 25 times more likely to write fiction, 22 times more likely to perform music or theater. So again, these are correlative studies. They, they don't prove causation, but they strongly suggest that there, there, there are some powerful and important connections there. So one of the things that we really felt that we wanted to do was to advance the evidence base so that we might begin to move beyond correlative studies or narrow-gauged experimental causal studies like the one about engineering and uh, students and communication skills and see if we could, in a broader way, begin to develop evidence for the impact of arts-based learning on how we think, on our creative thinking skills, on how we work together, our collaborative behaviors, and ultimately how we innovate by looking at the innovation outputs. The NSF encouraged us to take a look at what we had done so far and see if we could, might be able to build on that in some way where we could essentially take the very, very, very best practices that we had developed by now a decade of working at this, build something with them that were large enough and sustained enough that we could actually then begin to measure it and to do that, to then gather lots of data and begin to understand this better. And out of that was born the idea of phase two, which we launched in 2012 with uh, a $2.8 million grant from the National Science Foundation. So they were really looking at learning that takes place outside of formal education settings. And so that means a rich range of community settings and, and uh, museum types of settings, libraries, uh, uh, after school, pro- lots of different types of, of, of ways in which learning can take place. And we felt that that was also very, very strongly suited for the kinds of cross-disciplinary and uh, multi-generational approaches that we wanted to take in exploring this relationship between arts-based learning and science. And our model for thinking about how we might do this was actually the conferences, because in these conferences, these were little learning communities. We actually uh, did some fairly sophisticated analyses of the language that, that the people used at the beginning of the conference coming together. And again, we had artists speaking their language and scientists speaking their language and educators and so forth. And then looking at the, at, at the language after a couple of days of discussion, but also of art making to, to, and, and making the art to learn about arts-based learning. And what we discovered is that we were actually able in a remarkably short period of time to begin to measurably and significantly knit together a common shared language. I was immediately captivated by the idea of taking something like these learning communities that we had built in the conferences over a day and a half and seeing what would happen if we expanded them and did something like that for a year or a year and a half. And so that was really the genesis of some key design elements for phase two of the project. So there are four components to our phase two project. The first is we decided, again, the the NSF suggested that we knit together the very best practices that had been developed in this field. We decided that the way that we wanted to do that was to knit them together in creating a new arts-based innovation process curriculum. That's a mouthful. Uh, What it means is that we wanted to use all of these different arts-based learning processes. Some of them were based in jazz, some in in classical music, some in painting and sculpture, some in poetry and filmmaking, some of them in, in, in virtually every imaginable art form. 
Uh, but we wanted to knit them together to use them to teach the skills and processes of innovation. So often when we think about arts and innovation, we think about problem solving or we think about ideation. And those are important elements. But we really wanted to look at the whole picture. Everything from what is a problem? What is an opportunity? What is an idea? And how we do that exploring. All the way at the far end to how do you go to market with a solution? And we wanted to teach as much as we could of that entire process using artistic skills, processes, and experiences. We wanted to teach it to communities of learners that crossed most of the usual boundaries. So cross-disciplinary artists and scientists together, along with educators, multi-generational students and people in the workforce and retired people, and really bring together people of very, very different backgrounds. Once we built the curriculum, we also then built three incubators for innovation as test sites where we could test the curriculum. And as I said, the model for each one of these incubators was really in, 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 its, in its core form first developed as a prototype uh, in the conferences, and we built them out as incubators. In addition, we conducted experimental research along the way. So we, we not only had our curriculum and then, and then put it to work refining it and testing it by generating innovations in the incubators, but we did separate linked experimental studies to gather data. And then finally, we generated lots of opportunities to engage the public and use the, the creativity and the excitement and the energy of innovation at the intersection of art, science, and learning to engage the public in STEM. Our basic approach to the innovation process, we think about innovation as a journey made up of steps. And it's a very practical process. And the way that we get good at it is by practicing the steps. So we spent a lot of time in the, in the, in the beginning of our project looking at different ways in which we think about the process of innovation. Obviously, there are many processes of innovation, but we looked at, at hundreds of them. And we engaged many leaders from business and industry and from academia in a discussion, in, in a whole series of discussions about innovation and the processes being used. And out of that, we distilled this sort of conceptual model that really embraces and encompasses many different approaches to innovation. What many of them share is this idea of a fuzzy front end of innovation, where the open end of the funnel, where lots of, lots of ideas and inputs take place, a more linear or spiral, if you will, kind of developmental process in which um, the ideas are selected, criteria are applied, and then the back end of it where an innovation is developed and then it has to be radiated out into the community. In order to make that work, it's important to have some filters and some gates along the way. There are many different types of, of, of processes, and many use many, many gates, and some not at all. We felt that a modest number of them would be very helpful for what we were trying to do, but we didn't want to overwhelm the process with gates either. We then essentially turned that into a schematic series of steps, again, that many innovation processes have in common. And, so, and we sort of boiled our stylized version of the process down to uh, a series of eight steps and two gates. With these steps in mind, we then went back to everything we had learned in the phase one conferences, working with the 90 researchers, all the claims that were made, all the experience that the educational practitioners had working with the arts. These are some of the things that they told us that they were observing, seeing, that they were seeing correlations around.
And so we saw the process of building the curriculum essentially as one of connecting the dots. So what we did is we took these and we applied them directly to the steps where we felt they would be the most powerful, most compelling, most effective ways of engaging innovation. In developing our curriculum, we kept a few things in mind. This is a quote that I really love from Linus Pauling, the best way to have a good idea is to have a lot of ideas. And sort of think about the whole idea space as this big iceberg with this kind of obvious 10% of it that sticks up above the waterline and then all these sets of possibilities that, that lie beneath. So if you think about it, in most of the innovation that we do in all of our organizations, and this applies to, to industry, but it also applies to academia, we're very good at the 10% that, lie above the, uh, that lies above the waterline. We're very good at things that require clear, direct, purposeful, logical, analytical, measurable kinds of thought. What we felt is that the arts represent an opportunity to engage the other 90% of the idea space, to help us dive into what's not clear and what's not direct, what's murky and intuitive and ambiguous and, and, and random. So in doing that, we also felt that the arts could give us some powerful cultural tools that would be of tremendous, tremendous benefit to innovators. To understand why that is, we really kind of need to look at 30,000 years of art history which we're going to do in three slides. Think of this as the first 29,900 years of art history. It's beautiful. It's about representation. And then, about 100 years ago, give or take, this happened. This looks very different. It's also very beautiful. It's about many things, but it's not about representation. It's about experimentation. The key task of the artist was to do it better. So if your job is to represent and capture the world as beautifully, as, as precisely, as effectively as you think you can, then what you want to learn how to do and what you want to teach the next generation to do is to do it even better. Better is still important in our world today, but different is perhaps even more important now. In our representational world where our job is to do it better, first and foremost, we need skills. And skills are no less important today to, to an innovator. But skills are no, they're necessary, but they're no longer sufficient. With skills, increasingly, we need ideas. And we need ideas in realms and domains where we never really thought of needing ideas before. This kind of shift, which we've all felt in our own lives in the last decade or two, with the IT revolution, with the radical acceleration of change, all those forces that were just being let loose in the, in, 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 in the world of business and organizations and innovation 15 and 20 years ago that we've seen in, in, our, in our life as a society, in how we do business, in how our politics work, and how uh, culture evolves and, and, and society changes. All of these changes they actually happened in, 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 and were anticipated in the art world about 100 years earlier. So there's about 100 years of learning that we mine when we tap into the arts to explore innovation. What we strove to do in developing this curriculum was to engage these rich cultural learnings from the arts and the capacity of the arts to help us generate ideas uh, and to broaden our perspectives and to integrate them experientially in these waves that, that, that help us to sense 
the world around us and use that sensing to create. We make things. We make things to learn. And as we, as, 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 as we make things, we develop whole new learnings and whole new sensations, which then become the basis for the next wave. That took us about a year to uh, develop uh, the curriculum in its initial form. And then we began to work on creating our three incubators for innovation, where we would implement the curriculum and test it out. So we decided to put them in three very different parts of the country, in institutions for informal science learning, because we, our objective here was to create a curriculum to teach innovation so that it could be applied for STEM innovation and STEM learning. And uh, at the same time, we wanted three very different types of centers for informal learning. So we started here in San Diego, and, and that's not surprising because San Diego was a huge center for our, our phase one project at CalIT2 at UCSD. And the interest and energy of the whole community in San Diego around STEAM and the leadership that San Diego was providing, the energy around it, was really kind of extraordinary. So we very much wanted to be part of that, to draw on it, and to contribute to it. So we were fortunate to be able to partner with the institutions of Balboa Park who come together in the Balboa Park Cultural Partnership. Balboa Park brings together, I think, 27 different institutions for informal learning. Science centers, art museums, theaters, uh, the San Diego Zoo. And each of them, in, the, in, 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 the, in their way, contributed uh, to hosting our year-long incubator for innovation. So in each community, we worked with community partners. Uh, the host partner... Uh, the cultural partnership, their role was not only to be a physical host to, to, to the activities of the incubator, but to really help us in developing the learning community, leveraging their, their deep knowledge and rich networks in the community and their expertise in informal learning. So with the help of the cultural partnership, we uh, began to explore the question of what challenge would San Diego like to spend a year working on? So in each, for each incubator, we asked the community to work with us to develop a civic challenge that would be the, the focus for innovation work. Not surprisingly, the overwhelming choice in San Diego was the challenge of water resources and how supply and demand might be aligned. Our second incubator was in Chicago. And in Chicago, we were extraordinarily fortunate to be able to partner with the Museum of Science and Industry, which is the largest science center in the Western Hemisphere. So whereas in San Diego, we partnered with a, a sort of a collaborative network of many different types of institutions. In Chicago, we partnered with uh, a, a, a very large uh, and, and, and extraordinarily accomplished leader in STEM innovation and STEM learning. Uh, so the Museum of Science and Industry then, in turn, helped us to collaborate with and engage lots of other partners in the community. And again, we engaged in this conversation about what the civic challenge might be in Chicago. The focus was on urban nutrition. Finally, our third incubator was located in Worcester, Massachusetts. Worcester is a much smaller community. It's also a very old one and one with extraordinary history and tradition, uh, not only of, 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 of industrial development and innovation, 
at the time of the Civil War, 50% of all the patents in America were held in Worcester. But uh, it also has deep and rich cultural traditions and artistic traditions. And so in Worcester, we partnered with Ecotarium, which is a small and wonderful indoor-outdoor museum. And they were worked in association with Clark University, which is a large research university. And in Worcester, the focus was on transportation alternatives. In each one of the incubator communities, we worked closely with our, our host partner to develop relationships with uh, a whole network of community partners. We formed advisory councils and networks, and, and it was really this, this rich texture you see here, uh, some of our partners in San Diego, that enabled these incubators to work effectively uh, embedded in the community. For each one of the incubators, we, we hired a, a, an incubator director, and we had remarkable people in, in each incubator. And uh, one of the prime tasks, really the, the most difficult task in the first year uh, of work was essentially re- recruiting a learning community, because for each incubator, we wanted 100 Art of Science Learning Fellows. And this was a real challenge because we wanted people that came from these very diverse groups. We decided we wanted roughly 20% of our participants to be high school students and the rest of them to be adults. Uh, we wanted artists, scientists. We wanted educators, both STEM educators and teaching artists, classroom teachers. We wanted architects, designers, and planners. We wanted policymakers and researchers business leaders, so people that came from from just extraordinarily rich and diverse backgrounds. And we also wanted people who would be highly motivated to work because innovation is very hard work. And each of these challenges that 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 the incubators were working on are in their way, they're wicked problems. They're 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 problems that not only don't have easy and obvious solutions, but often everything that you do to try to solve the problem will actually create other problems. And so we knew that it would be a very intense, challenging, in some cases very difficult and time-consuming and labor-intensive process. And the Art of Science Learning Fellows were all volunteers. They were volunteering to spend 100, 200 plus hours of time over the course of a year working on these problems that they cared about deeply, but for the most part were way outside their realm of expertise. Having now developed our curriculum and established the incubators, we launched them. And this is how we launched them. This is what you see here is uh, a day of metaforming in October of 2013 at the Air and Space Museum in Balboa Park as we launched the San Diego Incubator, San Diego being the first of the three that we launched. We launched these incubators with metaforming both because it's an extraordinarily rich and powerful kind of multidimensional arts-based form of brainstorming that allows us to, 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 to surface ideas from many different places. It's also a collaborative form, and so it began the process of knitting together learning communities. You see the, 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 the Art of Science Learning Fellows working in this very uh, inspiring environment, working with different kinds of symbolic materials, and you can use metaphoring for many different purposes. We used it in the opening of the incubators to begin to ask each participant what does innovation mean to you? Because we wanted to, from the very beginning, surface the different ideas, the different values that people were, were, were bringing to this, the, the aspirations and the hopes and the fears that people brought to this year-long adventure. So we focused on the front end of innovation, where we're exploring problems and opportunities and really asking some lots of questions and doing open-ended inquiry and exploring possibilities. And we wanted people to learn about innovation 
as opposed to immediately jumping into, well, I know what I want to do about solving the water problem, and so I just want to get down to doing it. So to make sure that people actually step back from the canvas and began to absorb this process of innovation, we focused the first six or seven weeks of work in the incubator, not around the challenge that they were going to be working on for a year, but a practice challenge. So what we did is we swapped the challenges out among the incubators. So here in San Diego, for example, they spent, the incubator spent its first six weeks working on transportation, the challenge of Worcester. And in Chicago, they worked on uh, water resources. And in Worcester, they worked on urban nutrition. And so what that did is it really gave people the opportunity to explore ways in which you use these artistic skills and processes, tools and experiences to explore innovation and to perform the front end of innovation without getting immediately into, well, I want to make the right choice because it's going to affect how we spend the year and so on and so forth. So we think of the front end of innovation as essentially two successive waves of divergent convergent thought. So by divergent convergent thought, I mean that, that we start each step in the process, really, as through, through a process of diverging, where we think of lots of ideas and lots of possibilities, and we always take the time to do that before we then pivot and begin to converge. We apply criteria to the things that we've come up with, and we make choices. And then we go on to the next phase. So that's a wave of divergent, convergent thought. In the front end, there are two. The first is, what's the problem? The second is, how do we want to solve it? So if you take a look, that translates into the four steps of the front end of the innovation process. Opportunity identification, opportunity analysis, idea generation and enrichment, idea refinement and selection. We use a model, which we call an opportunity exploration model, that looks something like this. We start with a challenge. What we're looking for are examples of of unmet needs, constraints, conflicts that we see things that aren't the way they should be. Each one of those is the marker for a problem. And on the other side of every problem lies an opportunity for innovation. We use lots of tools and techniques that are important to the innovation process. And we we were guided in many ways in the development of these by the Product Development Management Association, PDMA. Dr. Hamza Thoda, who's the author of of Key Concepts of Innovation, worked closely with us to build in uh, these kinds of tools and best practices as a kind of innovation underpinning or chassis to the whole curriculum. So we did conflict mapping and customer-centric focus and roadmaps and scenarios but we used arts-based techniques on all of them. So for example, we started our ethnography with introspection and reflection, and we used a kind of open-ended jazz improvisation as a way of entering into that world. Because working with musicians who start with sometimes very unpromising musical materials and very spiky and difficult landscapes that nonetheless are able to find opportunities in the moment and begin to build extraordinary things with that. The basic way that we approach ethnography starts with observe to gain insight, but we then do what we call transliteration, which allows us to gain richer insights. By transliteration, what we mean is that we take the observation that we see, and we don't stop with the insights that it gives us, we actually capture it through some art form, whether that's drawing or painting or 
poetry and haiku or ma- many different ways that it can be captured, and then we mine that for richer insights as well. One of the things that we, we, we worked with is movement, um, and we did this in order to create ways of integrating how we think about numbers and how we think about our intuition and our imagination. You might think of this as one of the world's first data visualizations. And what it does is it shows the march of Napoleon's army in very graphic terms. Minard, who actually lived in the age of Napoleon III, but as a young man, this was his world. Napoleon's army marching out from Paris in that bright red robust on the left and crawling back the remnants of that army. 18 months later, broken. And when you look at this image, you begin to understand something about, about that history from 150 or 200 years ago that you don't typically think of when you think of Napoleon's army. It becomes very powerful in, in, in its visualization. What we work with is we work with taking that to the next level through movement. We call it feeling numbers. We actually had people in the incubator modeling and evoking and creating for themselves the world of Napoleon's army as a way of taking these abstractions of we started out with a million men and we had, you know, uh, 1,500 who crawled back to Paris 18 months later. These become very powerful and very real. We also worked with, with the fellows in the incubator to take their ideas and build sculptures and clay sculptures and working with metal and different ways of modeling the idea. And we find that modeling the idea is a powerful way of developing it, learning from it, communicating it, and we also find that, that um, when fellows model the criteria as well, it becomes very clear in a very visceral way which ideas actually can stand up and which ones can't. Having done this front end in a practice challenge, we then went back and repeated it, this time with the actual challenge in the incubator. So no longer as a workshop academic exercise, but really beginning to explore water resources in San Diego. This was the first day of this front-end implementation, and it actually took place at a maker's fair in, in, in north of, of, of San Diego. And uh, it was a wonderful opportunity for the incubator fellows to engage makers and others in the community and in, in, in a natural environment where they could explore dimensions of, of, of the water challenge and to see what other people were developing and creating around it. And then immediately, having observed and interacted in this way, they set up a tent and transliterated and made art out of it, and used that to begin to develop their thinking and their ideas. This is in Worcester, where the first day of front-end implementation, the entire incubator got on the train. They were exploring transportation. They rode it into Boston. And again, they had this experience. It gave them opportunities for ethnography. And then they transliterated it. They captured it. They drew, they drew pictures and images. They made haiku and used that as ways of modeling their ideas and beginning to, to, to mine for deeper insights. What they, had, what they had seen. So this is a day of citizen science here in San Diego. It took place uh, during the front-end implementation. This is actually at the Woodbury School of Architecture. And we have Art of Science Learning Fellows getting ready to go out into the Pueblo Estuary and to actually gather data about soil samples and moisture and, 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 and to observe the natural world and the impact of, 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 of water on it and human choices and the impact of water there and then immediately taking their observations and transliterating them, using the transliterations to mine them for insights. And so they they mine them for all of these different ideas about possible ways of approaching what is the problem. 
before we get to how do we want to solve it. And so looking for the opportunities. And so these are the ones that, that were surfaced by the incubators. You see this extraordinarily rich set of ideas that are starting to, to form about understanding really deep and nuanced thinking about what's the problem. So then the fellows began to make models of their ideas and maps of what they saw and experienced, how they were beginning to organize their thinking around that. Then they used those as a way of presenting their ideas, exploring them, discussing them, debating them, beginning to try to persuade one another about which ideas the incubator ought to be pursuing over the course of the year. The final phase of this front-end implementation that took place was a day of exhibition-making. And this was really uh, uh, an innovation in the curriculum that was developed here in San Diego. And it was largely developed by our incubator team, by Nan Renner, who is the director of our incubator, by Deborah Forster, who's our lead local faculty here in San Diego. And so what the fellows did is anyone who wanted, had an idea for a project an opportunity for innovation and, uh, and, and, had a, and a way of solving it that they wanted to, to, uh, uh, to work on were encouraged to build a model of it and to actually turn it into an exhibition. And so we spent a day developing all of these. And the point of this was not only did the ideas become more refined and nuanced as, 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 as they were built out, but people could begin to think about what they actually wanted to work on because they were heading into making choices. So here in Chicago is the exhibition making day. Uh, here's a, 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 an idea for a project around the development of green community leaders. Here in San Diego about a student educational water challenge. In Worcester, big data as a way of approaching some of the transportation issues. Hub and spoke systems and how that might be overcome. Now we had something, a, a real pivot point and an inflection point within each of the incubators. They had completed the front end, and people had the opportunity to essentially vote and select the problems and the solutions that they wanted to work on. And so in each incubator, we formed roughly 10 teams. And it was largely done through a very open-ended democratic process. Occasionally, we had to put our thumb on the scale a little bit uh, if we saw a project that we, we, we felt might lie outside the scope of work that we could tackle or where we, we thought it was useful to combine them. But by and large, people essentially developed the ideas that they wanted to work on and, and were able to spend their year working on those. This was a point where the learning unit began to shift within our learning community of the incubator. So during the first months of open-ended exploration, the learning unit was the individual and the community of 100. But from this point forward, the learning unit was really the team, roughly 10 people. And of course, yes, they still were part of a learning community. We did lots to make sure that, that, that we maintained a robust learning community. But the real focus was increasingly on the work of these teams. And so as the teams were formed, we gave each team a small budget for prototyping materials of a few hundred dollars. Uh, an expert mentor, and the mentors that we had on this project were really wonderful and remarkable people who helped out in many, many ways. A base camp site so that they could work collaboratively and also so that we could gather data and track the collaborations. We also gave the teams a set of criteria, and we asked each team to be ready in a couple of weeks to present at a gate panel of external experts who would have to pass on each project before we authorized it to move forward for out of the front end and into development. And so this was 
a really important pivot point. It was a tremendous challenge for all of the fellows who had been spending months now working in a very open-ended and creative and exploratory kind of way, uh, and suddenly were faced with some very challenging criteria. And uh, for many who came into it thinking, well, the arts mean creativity, it means that there are no wrong answers, and so on and so forth. In fact, what they began to learn is that you apply art to innovation, and creative thinking is about convergence as well as divergence, and that, that there are answers that work and answers that may not work for a particular challenge. And so the teams had to find ways to work together collaboratively to, 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 to meet these, these, these difficult demands to prove that, this was, uh, that their particular idea was an idea with potential viability and that they actually had plans to move it forward. Some of the teams passed the gate the first time out, about 30% of them, but roughly two-thirds of the teams actually didn't, and so they had to go back and do more work. In each case, we gave them lots of notes and lots of input and guidance, and, and a couple of teams actually took three. One team actually took four times to get through the gate. But the remarkable thing was, in each case, as the teams worked, the ideas got better, they got more evolved and sharper, and none of the teams actually gave up. They showed remarkable resilience and strength and determination to move it forward. So we knew that within the incubator communities, as this was happening, there, the teams were proceeding now at different paces, and we felt it was very important to, to do things to hold the community together, because we knew that here, here's a team that, that's flown through the gate and they're working on development. Here's another team that maybe is feeling a little discouraged because they were asked to go back and do it again. How do they work together? We use this as the opportunity to focus our our curriculum and our learning around the things that all the teams had in common, which was a need for the core skills of innovation. The core skills of innovation aren't linked to any one specific step. They're common to all the steps. And these are the skills that we talked about much earlier, collaboration, communication, so forth. We worked with string quartets. We brought in the Bedford Quartet. Uh, and uh, this is a day working with a string quartet in the treehouse of the San Diego Zoo as a way of exploring the collaborative dynamics of a quartet for learning about high-performance teamwork. Then we brought in jazz musicians. This is Jazz Impact, and Michael Gold, a member of our, of our, of our national faculty, and very different types of collaboration. And this is actually what happens when you bring together jazz musicians who are performing blindfolded. And then, finally, we actually gave the fellows a couple of hundred boom whackers and all kinds of, of rhythmic exercises, and they got to explore the dynamics of these types of collaboration for themselves. A process that we developed in our curriculum, which we call rehearsing ideas, was also really important. What you see here now is a team which is essentially working roughly the way that a string quartet rehearses. So giving each other real-time feedback and exploring ideas in ways where you actually take the idea and rehearse it to make it better. You try lots of things, you iterate, and you, you discard the ones that don't work and you move it forward. So the process looks something like this. This is a fairly familiar cycle. We think of it as design thinking or the user-centric focus, uh, and it brings together creativity, which we surface in order to, 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 to prototype, which allows us to create visual models of things so that people can engage our ideas and with empathy and we can engage them with empathy and learn from their feedback so that we can go on and do it again. And so this is the core of many uh, lean startup approaches and lean entrepreneurial approaches to innovation. It's also the core of how great ensembles work.
But what we did in our curriculum was we took this and essentially, by applying theater to it, put the whole process on steroids. Because what theater allows you to do is it allows you to take a prototype, which might otherwise take weeks and cost a certain amount of money, and it allows you to essentially work with almost no money very rapidly to build the world of an innovation and test it in terms of all the different stakeholders, whether those are customers and users or suppliers or, or regulators and so on and so forth, how they respond to it by creating what we call dynamic prototypes and then testing them and getting the feedback and then iterating around that. Can you learn as much from a low-fidelity prototype as you can from one that you spend weeks on? No, but you can perhaps learn 80% as much and you can do it maybe a thousand times faster. Pivoting now from this work that was going on with all of the teams around the core skills to the work that the actual teams were doing individually during this period as they passed through the gate and began to develop their innovation, let's look at a few of the teams. This is one of our teams here in San Diego, uh, Team A. They call themselves From Trash to Paradise. This team had the remarkable idea of actually taking the trash that's so much a part of the ecosystem of the Tijuana River and using it in some way to help actually clean and purify and improve the estuary and the the watershed. The vision that they had was to essentially create filtration systems. Filtration systems that would use large particulate trash like plastic bottles and old tires to build containing walls. And through the many iterations that developed, the idea came of creating a a system that would be an artificial wetland that could turn black water into gray water that could be used for agricultural purposes. The team partnered with a church in Tijuana, got hundreds of community volunteers, is now building the prototype for this, and really showed just remarkable persistence and resilience and, 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 and creativity in the design and the development and the actual implementation of their innovation. And a key part of the, of, the, of the innovation was a curriculum. So the idea being that this isn't something that could just be done in a church in Tijuana, that it's actually a prototype for a solution that could be used in, 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 in resource-poor communities all over the world. Because really what it requires is trash, labor, and understanding of the processes involved, and that's what the curriculum did. Is, is it was a way of teaching people what they needed to, to, to know to be able to do these. So this is a team in Chicago that was spearheaded by uh, a science teacher and a choreographer. And together, and with the other members of the team, they developed a curriculum called Growing Innovations. It's a curriculum for middle school kids, uh, and it's key to next generation science standards. And it uses uh, engineering and hydroponics, experimental design, and arts-based approaches to explore really important questions around the science of nutrition and the science of growing. This team actually developed their curriculum. They then put it to work in a school in Chicago, in a, in a, in a mixed neighborhood in Chicago, and uh, actually implemented, I believe, 18 classes over the course of a semester. This is a team in Worcester that developed a really remarkable novel system. 
So Worcester is a, is, a, is a relatively small city, one that has very limited public transportation. Most of the medical centers are located in the center of the city, and many of the poor people live in periphery of this, of the city, with no easy good way to actually gain access to, uh, to, to the appointments. So depending on how those appointments are scheduled, the commuting time could range from a half an hour to two and a half hours each way. The difference, particularly to people in distress or families that are dealing with very young children, is, 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 is enormous. The innovation that this team came up with was a, a, a dynamic scheduling system, uh, link, an algorithm that links directly uh, from the scheduler and the public transportation networks to the patients, to the users, so that essentially appointments could be optimized for the best possible public transportation arrangements and with information texted back on a real-time basis to patients. The team then proceeded to, to secure federal DOD funding to build the prototype of this, persuaded a large medical center in Worcester to partner with them on it, and they're now uh, implementing this on a, on, a, on a large-scale trial basis. So what we saw was this really extraordinary proliferation of ideas that, that, that went way beyond the front end, were actually developed into, in, in, into working prototypes, and then brought to market in some form as minimally viable products or, or, or working prototypes. Here's a good case study here in San Diego, a team that's called Kate's Place. The team is now called Waterwiser, but this will, will trace the origins of the team. This is the day that it started. It was even before it started, in that day of exhibition building, with a few Art of Science Learning fellows who decided to call it Kate's Place, named after Kate Sessions, the mother of Balboa Park. And their vision was some sort of a model house and garden that could showcase new technologies and bring people together around water conservation. Here they are just a month later in February. The team has already made some major strides forward in structuring their thinking, and this is their their presentation at the gate panel. They flew through the gate the first time out, and so they began the development of their idea. By March and April, they were actually building it. Here they are building, using Arduino boards, to build uh, soil sensors that were able to see how the various technologies that were working in the garden developed 24-7 data and and then tweet it out to their growing number of followers. This team had an approach to developing their innovation. I call it the the Jack and the Beanstalk business model because their idea was that they were going to build a working prototype at the San Diego County Fair. They were going to win first prize at the fair, and they were going to take the money and use it to develop their innovation. So here they are in May going ahead and building it at the fair and getting people enlisted in doing it. And here they are in June collecting their first prizes. So these teams really did remarkable things over the course of their years. And if we look at this, how this played out across the country, we had 28 teams, each one with a novel product, process, service, or learning program that addressed these terribly difficult and important STEM challenges, all developed by teams of artists, scientists, educators, and high school students, and all working with an arts-based curriculum to help them learn how to do that. So the third core element of our phase two was research. So we thought briefly about trying to gather experimental data from our incubator teams, but we also realized that that would be extraordinarily 
messy, complex. There were year-long sprawling projects with more variables than we could possibly control for. And so instead what we decided to do was to do some, some parallel separate experimental studies to dive deeply into the question of what's the impact of this curriculum and of arts-based learning on creative thinking skills, collaborative behaviors, and innovation outputs. The hypothesis that we wanted to test was that integrating the arts into innovation training would result in enhanced creative thinking skills, more robust innovation processes that would show up in more collaboration and in better outputs. And we wanted to, to, to explore that with both high school students and with professional scientists. So the way that we did this is we designed a, a, a small-scale version of the front-end curriculum that could be done in 20 hours. And we did them in five successive four-hour sessions, four, so five weekends in a row. Uh, we worked with high school students in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, coming from 19 different high schools and, and carefully sampled and balanced for uh, income and socioeconomic background and, and demographics and special interest in science or art, academic achievement, and so forth. And in... Uh, among the scientists we worked and STEM professionals, we worked in San Diego. We included both uh, scientists working in academia and in research and STEM educators. Uh, and we also decided to focus on early career STEM professionals, so people working within the first seven years of their professional lives in, in STEM, which meant that most of them were in their late 20s or early 30s, although a, a small number were, were older because they had changed careers uh, uh, later on in life. We developed the, the design for this study slowly and carefully over about a year and a half period. We drew on the research of, of, of many of the researchers that we had, had, had worked with in phase one and, in, and, and who have done other work in creativity research, our efforts were really led and spearheaded by the, the researchers of audience viewpoints who were our, our, our research partners in this project. And we were looking at different types of measures for each of these areas. We decided to try to measure creative thinking skills by testing those skills. That proved to be more complicated than it sounded because there aren't really good instruments that, that, or there weren't when we started this process, that existed that would really capture the kinds of information about how people's creative thinking skills might evolve in the time scale of the interventions that we were doing, and that might actually apply creativity to innovation in specific ways. Ultimately, what we decided to do is we invented a new instrument which let us look at creative thinking skills. And what that instrument consisted of was, was a pretest or an activity and a post-test, a simple activity, but one that nonetheless gave us lots of data about how, how the participants were viewing questions like, what's the problem and how do we want to solve it, how they were approaching those processes at the beginning, and then 20 hours later, five weeks later, at the end. The second thing that we did is we looked at collaborative behaviors. And here, we relied primarily on observational data. So what we did is we trained teams of observers 
we worked off of some carefully developed scales and rubrics, and we observed the collaborative behaviors of these teams across the 20 hours. And so we gathered really rich data from that. The third, the innovation outputs, we decided to convene an expert panel. We were extraordinarily fortunate, and with the, with the help of PDMA, we were able to uh, recruit the judges and the, the founder of the OCI, the Outstanding Corporate Innovation Awards, which is really the, the leader in this field in, in the world. And so these remarkable people convened long after the, the, the work of these teams to view the tapes at the University of Indiana and to score them uh, very carefully. So we had both control and treatment groups. We had four teams of high school students who were control and four teams who were treatment, and likewise with the scientists four and four. They studied separately, of course, and did their innovation processes separately, but they used identical processes with the same faculty, the same resources available to them. The curriculum was built closely aligned with one another. The only difference, the one variable, is that the treatment groups, roughly 10 of the 20 hours, were spent learning the same material by using the arts. So all of the work was physically based. It was all project-based. So there were, the teams were working, doing many of the same things, except that the treatment teams were using music and movement and theater and drawing and sculpture to develop their ideas, to explore their questions, and to arrive at their prototypes and their solutions. At the end of the time, we asked each team to develop a business case, working from a template that we gave them. We asked each team to do a presentation to a local panel and to respond to questions. But the local panels were, were, were working with questions that, that we had programmed, and we vide- videoed it all. And the, uh, the OCI panel... Uh, viewed all of this uh, on a blind and random basis. They had no idea who the control teams and who the treatment teams were. And uh, this all took place over about a seven-month period. As we gathered all of this data, we actually first developed the instrument, piloted it uh, in about a dozen rounds of pilots. Then we finally uh, gathered data, and then we coded everything what they found was fairly dramatic and remarkable. First of all, taking a look at the impact of arts-based learning on adults. If you look at these five sessions, the collaborative challenges grew more difficult with each session because the pressure was on these teams. They were, it, it's relatively easy to collaborate in the beginning when there are lots of questions uh, and lots of possibilities and you're exploring things open-endedly. It's much more difficult when you're putting your ideas out there and winners and losers have to be selected. And that's where the arts-based teams show this extraordinary strength. Similarly, with mutual respect, with trust, we actually measured, I think, 11 different aspects of collaboration, and I believe seven of them, showed statistically significant differences in the adults. And in each case, that difference was in favor of the teams that had had used arts-based learning. Now looking at the innovation outputs and looking at those among the high school students, again, we see really dramatic differences that emerged in insight, in clarity and relevance of the problem, in the solution of the problem, and the impact of the innovations that were developed. So in other words, at each of those key points that they were looking at, what's the problem and how do we want to solve it? Innovation is defined 
by novelty, by impact, and by value. And what we saw here was extraordinary strength that was very clearly evident among the adolescents that, that worked with the arts when compared with those who hadn't. Looking at the creative thinking skills, we see some really extraordinary patterns that emerged. So the green bars here look at the pre and post change among the students that had worked with the arts. So we see that their idea ranges grew more robust, their ability to explain a problem and why it was a compelling target and opportunity for innovation really became much, much stronger. And they came up with many more solutions. So these are all signs of enhanced creative thinking that was taking place during these processes. What's maybe more interesting is to compare it with what was happening in the control group, where we actually saw in some areas that there was a depressive effect that the control curriculum had on idea range, problem, rationale, number of solutions. Even though some of these bars are not enormous, they are statistically significant. And so if we think of, 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 of the control curriculum as, in its way, a very good exemplar of a typical high school curriculum that does not involve the arts, we see signs of a phenomena that those of us who teach high schoolers or who have them at home have recognize, will recognize right away, which is that many aspects of traditional high school learning depress the creativity of students. What this suggests is that there may be some inoculation effect that the arts have, where they not only stimulate creative thinking in their own right, but they actually are able to overpower or overcome the depressive effect that more traditional types of learning may have in a high school setting. We looked at the transferability of skills. This looks at high school students who were asked months after the sessions, had they been able to apply what they learned? And also, a second set of questions around, did they think that they'd be able to apply them? So what comes through is really interesting. The first is that clearly the kids who had been involved in the arts-based work were able to find more applications of what they learned. And again, these are statistically significant differences. But if you look at then the second question of what did they think was going to happen? So generally speaking among the, the control kids, the ones who'd used it thought that they would be able to continue to. But for the most part, those who hadn't used it already didn't really see that that was likely to happen. Among the arts-based kids, more of them were able to use it, but even more of them hadn't used it yet but felt that they would be able to use it. So in other words, they sensed a value in what they learned, and they continued to make active connections in their thinking to that. So these are all signs that integrating the arts into STEM innovation has all kinds of powerful learning impacts. It impacts how people think creatively and apply it to innovation. It impacts how they work together on teams. It impacts on the innovations that they develop. And it ultimately impacts on what they're able to carry forward from an educational setting to their lives. Finally, we took a look at a really simple question after only three hours of arts-based learning. What's the impact of all this on curiosity, on inquiry? And we saw that there was a real spark in inquiry skill and the quality and insight of questions that were being asked, and an even greater spike in curiosity in the number of questions and the intensity with which those questions were being posed by kids. 
if we look at all that data from the experimental study and then think about how that connects with what we saw in the incubators, we begin to understand an important dimension of arts-based learning and how it relates to how adults and kids learn. So in the incubators, as I said, we started with 28 teams. We all know that in the world of innovation, if 10% of our teams actually survive and bring an innovation project to fruition, we're doing pretty well. These teams had extraordinary challenges because they were teams of volunteers. They were working way outside of their expertise and comfort zones. They were collaborating with people who were very much unlike themselves. They were tackling extraordinarily difficult problems. Nevertheless, at the end of a year, 79% of these teams actually survived, flourished, and went to market after having met rigorous criteria for innovation. When I say went to market, I mean they were actually able to produce working prototypes or minimally viable products, and in some ways bring them into the market. And so what made that possible? How did that happen? Well, it, it's clear that with all of the experimental effects that we, we saw in the research studies around creative thinking and collaboration and innovation output and curiosity and, and inquiry and engagement, what we saw were the building blocks of resilience. And these teams were extraordinarily resilient. We saw that time after time as they had to meet a difficult set of criteria and weren't able to the first time, as they had to bring things into the market and gain, gain data and, and, and have their ideas knocked down by the market, as they met all of the challenges of actually realizing some of these very difficult and even improbable projects. We saw tremendous resilience, and in that we see a lot of the power that the arts bring to STEM learning. The final dimension of our phase two project was public engagement and how we could take all of this and bring it out into, into the world, bring it to the community, share it, and use it to spark interest in science, engagement with science and STEM, and new ways of thinking and learning about STEM through the arts. So we had artists in residence in all of the incubators. This is the work of Stephanie Bedwell, our artist in residence here in San Diego, this extraordinary shimmering work. This is a graphic novel that Hannah Gamble and Nick Gatling did in Chicago around urban nutrition. We did public events in all of the incubators. This is a day of exploring solutions to water with the entire community that was done at the Museum of Natural History in Balboa Park in San Diego. This looks at, at things that took place in San Diego and also in Worcester as we, as we did work with, uh, with members of the public and specifically with kids. This was a play day for educators here in San Diego where we brought in, I think, close to 800 educators into Balboa Park. And they had an opportunity to explore what we do with the art of science learning. And we had the opportunity to learn from them as they shared some of their ways of integrating art, science, and learning into educational projects. And we brought this all together with our current exhibition at the Fleet. So the Ruben H. Fleet Science Center has been our really wonderful partner throughout this process, hosting many of the incubator activities and in developing the exhibition, Innovation at the Intersection. So this is Innovation at the Intersection, uh, the Art of Science Learning exhibit. It's a traveling exhibition, and there are two things that are going on here. First, we wanted to give people an opportunity to uh, learn about all the work that's happened over the last few years at the incubators and learn about innovation at the intersection of art, science, and learning and art space learning and 
the STEM challenges and so forth. But second, we wanted to give people the opportunity to actually come inside this world and to experience it for themselves. And so there are some really uh, uh, rich interactive experiences in this exhibition, which are designed to give people a chance to do some of the same types of things that the participants in the Art of Science Learning Incubators did, and to use these tools to dis discover for themselves opportunities to innovate. The Art of Science Learning wouldn't be possible without the National Science Foundation. For the last, going back now to 2007, so for almost a decade, the NSF has really been a champion of research and exploration and understanding of the connections between art, science, and learning. It's a journey that, that has been, for Art of Science Learning and for the participants in our projects, a really remarkable opportunity. And the NSF has had this very passionate commitment to look at, at, at what the arts can bring to STEM learning, to public engagement with science, and to look at the science behind the art of arts-based learning, and to understand what the evidence tells us and how we can learn to use this in effective and practical ways to spark innovation and spark engagement with science. And uh, the NSF, in that sense, is really kind of playing the role of a national catalyst and a national treasure in this critical resource to the development of an innovative, competitive, 21st century American STEM workforce. So to kind of wrap up this presentation, here's what we did, and here's what we hope to do next. So our plan for phase three also has four major components. The first is we want to scale the curriculum that we've developed and use it to develop some new arts-based innovation resources. So the curriculum that we have right now is sprawling. It's 160 hours of workshops, and many of these workshops are extraordinarily complex and difficult to apply in, in real-world settings. And so much of what we'll be doing in the, in the first year of Phase 3 is to, to, to really focus on, on distilling out practical tools that can be implemented for specific learning objectives and in putting those in forms where they can be scaled. A significant part of the attention of that will also be developing some digital tools so that we can not only work with teams on site, but we can work with dis distributed teams and w do asynchronous work with teams and so forth. We then want to take those new resources and implement them not in incubators, as we did in phase two, but in real-world settings to drive real-world innovation. And so we'll be working with partners here in San Diego and across the country to work with schools, museums, community centers, libraries, businesses, lots of different types of real-world settings and tackling very difficult innovation challenges. We'll build on our research in many ways, because this will give us great opportunities to do that. Much of the work that we've done in phase two has been foundational work. We have actually developed the first sets of robust evidence of a causal relationship. We can now say that arts-based learning leads to improved creative thinking skills, enhanced collaborative behavior, more robust innovation outcomes, and so forth. We can't yet say much about why that happens, about what specifically is, is accomplishing that. Our curriculum brings together many art forms, many different types of activities, and we haven't 
yet been able to do any of the work that will separate the elements of that out and begin to understand what are the mechanisms, what works, what doesn't work, how do we make them as effective and impactful as possible. And so we'll, in, in a sense, be, be, be titrating those results. We'll be doing that over the course of phase three of the project. And finally, we seek to have some sustainable impact. So phase three will really culminate this cycle of the art of science learning that goes back to those first prototype conferences and will seek to not only have tools that can spark real-world innovation, outcomes that will demonstrate that and research data, but collaborative structures of practice and engagement that will allow this body of work to carry forward from there. So we'll be working with many of the same partners and some wonderful new partners. The Smithsonian will be involved as, as an important partner of our Phase three work, the Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation. We'll be working here in San Diego with the fleet again and also with uh, uh, the Jacobs Center for Neighborhood Innovation. We'll be working with the Elmhurst Art Museum in Chicago and other partners around the country as we explore this over the next few years. <laughs>